You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the founder and editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst and uh, Renew Economy contributor David Leach. David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, uh, Giles. I trust all our listeners are, as usual, uh, enjoying the podcast to some extent and keep keeps us abreast of electricity. I think you, you, you want to introduce a new feature. Not only have we got a great interview, but you want to introduce a new feature this week about the, the most popular articles. Well, look, I thought it was some way to engage the reader anyway, just to sort of, you know, summarise um, what we've seen this week. And um, before we get on to that, I just thought I um, might just briefly talk about... Um, um, one interesting piece of news today, a new 200 megawatt solar farm being built near Wellington in New South Wales. Uh, we don't get many sort of PPAs announced and new projects sort of committed, but um, a couple of interesting points about this. One, it's from Lightsource BP, which is a joint venture between UK-based Lightsource and is effectively BP's um, push into the renewables um, space. Um, two, it's like it's their first big solar farm in Australia. Three, it uses bifacial sol- uh, panels, modules, for the first time at this scale in Australia. And bifacial means it sort of not only um, generates electricity from the direct sunlight on the front of the module, but it also generates electricity from reflections that absorb from the back of the module. And fourthly, we finally get to we finally identify the last of Snowy Hydro's mysterious um, tender last, uh, earlier on this year, well no it was last year, 880 megawatts and they said they got really cheap deals but didn't actually tell us um, which projects they were but they've um, gradually come out one by one and um, this is the last um, This is the last one. Um, any thoughts David? No, it just shows that there is still some new projects uh, being committed and we've seen other reports this week from various forecasting people that says that, uh, which we know, there's a lot of people that would like to build more wind and solar, but uh, uh, we have to get the infrastructure in place. Uh, we also saw a report from AEMO uh, looking at uh, their central scenario on how things might develop. Uh, and I, the only other comment I'd make, it is interesting to read about the bifacial uh, panels. Uh, you might recall we had, because they, they will push the capital cost of the project up a bit, uh, but uh, that, that must be where the economics are. And it is interesting to just think about that in the context of Snowy, because when we look at the Snowy 2, it's not just about that pumped hydro, it is about firming up, you know, you've got to see Snowy 2 as the, as the bigger business, I think, of which this is a component. And the other part I wanted to mention from Gordon Weimer's uh, uh, interview that we did with him, uh, you know, my impression is that Snowy has been sort of leaning on the banks to an extent to help, well, not that uh, BP needs a lot of uh, bank help, but uh, to, to get some of these projects up, if you know what I mean, if you want to get the Snowy 2 business. Yes, yes, although I would actually point out that most of these contracts, um, there's 880 megawatts, and they probably won't be built until 2020, 2021 coming online, but um, the firming actually comes from the existing facilities in Snowy, not so much the um, the proposed new facilities, so really to keep them busy, you'd actually, with renewables, you'd need to build a whole heap of new capacity um, to make that work. I want to mention one other thing while we're doing this, Giles. We've, um, here at ITK, been updating uh, some of our numbers for our quarterly update to, to look at uh, new prices and look at new supply 
And I just run in around some of the wind farms in Victoria. They've been incredibly slow to ramp up. Uh, I think we've seen Marawara has been held at 70 megawatts for some considerable time. It's meant to be over 200 in, in the first stage. Uh, and Yeadon, which is the first stage of a, 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 another wind farm, um, that, whose name just escapes me for the moment, that's been held at 30 megawatts for a while when it's supposed to be 120 ramped up. Both of those are in Victoria. And, you know, you would have thought that there'd be some interest in getting those guys fully online ahead of the March quarter. <laughs> Yes, well, look, it's one of the great mysteries of life, isn't it? And not only that, um, as we've reported, um, four of the five big solar farms in Victoria have had their capacity reduced by half because of what's you know, newly discovered system strength issues. And, um, you know, there's a lot of other projects which have been held at various points. Um, I'm thinking of Bongala 2 solar farm in South Australia. That's supposed to be 120 megawatts. That's been sitting on 20 megawatts for more than six months, possibly close to a year. And um, and Kennedy um, and the Kennedy Hybrid project up in North Queensland has base hasn't basically moved off um, zero yet. So um, it's a pretty poor marks on 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 the you know you've got to come back and criticise AEMO. I'm not necessarily criticising the current team at AEMO, but I am saying that it's a pretty poor effort. I mean, it wasn't a great big secret that these projects were all going to get built and. Uh, and they had connection agreements, and, and yet, you know, here we still are with a frightful mess around it all. Well, exactly right, yes. And um, as you say, um, this summer they're going to desperately want as much capacity as they can get in the grid. Hey, look, going back to this sort of much um, um, ballyhooed new feature that we're going to have on the thing, one was just sort of talking about which um, stories managed to appeal to our readers over the um, last week, and I've just managed to actually lose lose the damn page now, but um, here it comes, it comes back again. So, look, the most interesting, the most read story was the IEA report on distributed solar um, that came out. It was more of a global look, and IPA is interesting because they've never really talked up solar and seriously misunder miss um uh, or lowballed uh, their forecast but um anyway they still think that um, distributed solar will be the dominant new generation in the um in coming into the grid over the next 10 years which is interesting we saw an analysis from the tesla big battery at hornsdale in september record revenues there um, that came from energy synapse and um a joint analysis from you and me david on the um australia's dirty grid may kill its biggest customers which is essentially looking at the impact of alcoa now it was kind of topped with four or five paragraphs of wild supposition from me and um about two thousand words of deep analysis from you david but you did make an interesting point um australian smelters are um, on a bit of a hiding to nothing at the moment aren't they well, they're old technology, but you don't have to, and you can, look, we need uh, manufacturing in Australia. We really do need it. Uh, um, you know, I often used to make the joke in England about, you know, that the investment bankers would just uh, pay the guys to cut their hair by giving out financial advice, and that was the end of the UK economy. But we don't really want to just be tourists uh, here, especially if there's no uh, barrier reef. So it, w it would be nice to have some manufacturing and industry. Uh, and if it's not aluminium, it might be data centres, assuming we could get over the privacy laws, which of course we can't, and the metadata laws, I mean. Uh, and, and, and it's just a way, because, you know, in the long run, us guys with rose-coloured glasses wander around saying Australia's going to have cheaper electricity and we're going to be through the wind and solar and we're going to be exporting hydrogen. But, you know, there may be no one to sell it to because in the meantime, all of these smelters, uh, which consume about 10% of Australia's electricity, are all going to close unless we, unless we find a way. And look, the bigger criticism, Giles, the bigger criticism is in so many other areas. And, and I don't want to get down on the federal government because it goes to governments of all persuasion. But there is just a lack of national leadership about how to drive these industries or to drive drought relief in general forward. You know, whether it's a three-year political cycle and getting a long way away from electricity, but 
we, we have to think about these things, you know, like when we developed the button tariff plan, it was years in the making uh, to reduce those tariffs. And there was a whole plan of how it was going to be coped for. But here we are just letting aluminium uh, smelters slide away into the, into, into the future. Decisions being made by their, you know, UK or American bosses uh, and Australia can do nothing about it. No, exactly right. Yes, absolutely. Hey, look, I'm just mentioning three other stories that um, also attracted the attention of our readers. Um, one actually came from a, um, a friend of a friend and someone who lives nearby who just wrote about his experiences owning an electric Kona and installing a 10 kilowatt rooftop solar system and why it made financial sense for him. And it was quite an interesting analysis. Um, then there was Lion Solar, um, which went into liquidation. And I think that's a company that um, said all the right things about solar and storage, but didn't actually do all the right things. And um, I think their fate has been sort of reasonably clear to many people in the industry for a while and one final other one I want to mention was the uh, rooftop solar pushing the South Australian grid demand down to a record low um, on Sunday and um, I guess the accompanying story with that also comes with AEMO looking at its um, limits of renewables um, process as part of its ISP so um, just on that Charles it's interesting because Ireland often gets cited as a case study uh, you know, for how, how they manage the wind and solar penetration. Uh, I've had occasion to look at Ireland when Marek Kubik uh, did the first big battery was done there. Uh, and in fact, before the one in Ireland, that's, before the one in South Australia, that's why I was always so confident the one in South Australia would work, at least in terms of doing very fast frequency response. But the only point I want to make here is the Irish uh, electricity market is really no bigger than the South Australian market. So I'm not too sure that lessons from there are particularly applicable to the broader NEM. Interesting. Hey, look, um, we've actually been busy this week, earlier this week. Um, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation released its annual report and um, Ian Leamoth, the CEO, was down at the All Energy Conference um, talking down there. And um, we got to chat with him. So, look, um, here's our interview with Ian Leamoth, the CEO of Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Ian Leamoth, Chief Executive of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Thanks very much for joining Energy Insiders. Lovely to be here. Ian, um, the CEFC has released its annual report for the last year um, this week. Um, what for you are the highlights? Well, look, the overarching highlight is that we uh, have committed another $1.5 billion into the clean energy sector here in Australia over the course of the, the last 12 months. So that's, um, you know, I feel like that's another great achievement. Uh, brings our total commitments as at 30 June to $6.2 billion. Uh, we've also now deployed $5 billion into uh, into investments since we've begun. So um, so that you know, as I say, is is you know, overall uh, is 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 pretty pleasing. Invested in a whole raft of different sorts of deals. Did a few firsts uh, for uh, for the CFC, and um, you know, continued our good work into decarbonising the Australian economy. Ian, I guess that leaves about one point eight or something of. Uh plus whatever you actually earn on the portfolio that is still available to be invested in future years or to commit in future years? Well, so that's, yeah, so that's 6.2 billion of commitments. We've got, we've got 10 billion uh, in our um, special account if, uh, in terms of, well, in terms of the allocation of, of uh, money to, uh, to the CEFC. So that's you know so that's sort of a you know some a reasonable gap and we I guess the other thing is because we've got a maturing portfolio we're we're now starting to 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 get back about half a billion dollars a year in terms of uh, repayments refinancing and we're starting to 
look at a whole raft of uh, recycling transactions with uh, you know, some of the loans and bonds that we've invested in, starting to sell into the secondary market. So, look, whilst you might think, well, you've only got three billion to go, or you know, or three, three, well, it, four billion, six point two, you got, th- <laughs> you got three point eight. Yep, you got three point eight left. You, you probably, uh, you know, don't want to take yourself right up to to ten billion dollars. So maybe you know, take a bit off that. But but we 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 are starting to to get our capital back. So that that that's the good news, and we'll um, be able to redeploy it into the uh, into the sector. I'll hand back to Giles in just a second. Uh, I should have I forgot it was ten and not eight. Um, but how are you finding the investment climate? Obviously, you invested a bit less this year than the year before. Um, and uh, look, I want to congratulate the CEFC and you on what a great job in the last couple of years. Uh, but but how are you finding the investment climate looking forward, the opportunities? Um, look, it's a changing market, a rapidly changing market. There we were um, for two years with... Um, you know, committing in excess of $2 billion a year. And we had, uh, particularly the wind and solar sector, was in full flight. We had the renewable energy target that was uh, being filled out very, uh, very rapidly. There was probably a, uh, really was a gap in uh, banks wanting to lend into these projects. Uh, still, there were a lot of merchant deals that didn't have contracting. So there was a, there was a, a, you know, a really two kind of huge years of that, but we're still, you know, we're still kind of continuing to invest in the wind and solar sector. But but it's matured. There are more players in that market. The, the RET's been built out, so people are looking at other ways of means of contracting, be it corporates, state governments. Uh, but we're as well as kind of continuing to to play in that sector. We're increasingly turning our attention to, to storage, both. Utility-scale batteries, pump storage, transmission opportunities. Uh, so that's that's what we kind of looking over the horizon. They're the sort of things that that we're now turning our attention to. So uh, you know, n- never a dull day at the CFC. <laughs> I'd like to explore that stuff about the battery storage and some of the over-horizon stuff now. But just looking back over your recent media announcements, and you've made another one um, today um, on on Wednesday um, when we're recording this, um, a lot of the money is now going into infrastructure funds and trusts and things like that. So we're helping with nursing homes, with real estate portfolios and things like that. Um, it doesn't sound quite as exciting as building new wind and solar farms. Um and it sounds, I guess, like a safe investment, but is it achieving as much in the terms of emissions reductions and the transition to the clean um, clean energy economy? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a good question. And you look at our, our portfolio, just over 50% of it is in renewable energy, as defined, uh, as, as we define it, effectively. And the other half is um, Broadly in energy efficiency. So it's interesting. I mean, half the portfolio is about generating clean energy and the other half is about reducing the use of energy supply, <clears throat> so kind of supply and demand, if you like. Um, so, yes, we have and did make uh, a number of investments in uh, you know, build-to-rent funds with Mervac, which we cornerstoned. We, you know, we, we've kind of, it was a smart meter investment with a group called uh, IntelliHub. Uh, we yes, we have gone into aged care. We've gone into healthcare. Where we where we have seen uh, or been convinced that the use of our capital is really going to to drive some some form of 
carbon abatement that wasn't going to come about otherwise. We're, you know, we're very kind of strict on them on the baselines that 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 are established and making sure that we get the 20, 30, 40 percent reduction over the longer term. So, um, yes, you know, it might look like sort of safe places to, to invest in money, but equally high impact as well. Yep, there's not the there's not the you know shiny new wind farm or, or solar project, but but it's really a very important um, part of the, the puzzle because emissions are coming from right across the economy. So, you know, we invest right across the economy. Mm. I'm just wondering if we can go to, um, I'll hand back to David in the uh, next question, but um, just tell us then about these over-the-horizon technologies and storage. Where particular does your interest lie at the moment in, in batteries and transmission and things like that? Anything you can talk about? Yeah. Yeah, look, um, Today, uh, the batteries that we've been financing have usually been connected to a renewables project. So there might be a large wind farm in South Australia that might have a 10 megawatt battery, and we did that in uh, uh, in um, uh, Lincoln Gap. We, we was one of the projects that we did that had a battery up in Kennedy in Queensland. is not quite connected to the grid, but there's wind, solar, there's battery, and we've been involved in a household battery finance program with the South Australian government who are offering uh, grants to people if you buy a home battery in that state. Now, but when you, when you look at um, you know, grid-scale batteries, for example, um, they are still still challenging business models because you, you, know, you might have to spend, I don't know, 5, 10, 50 million bucks on, on your grid-scale battery. You then have to think about what are the revenue sources that I can rely on over the next five or ten years and you have you know it's normally a combination of frequency control uh, income that you might get as well as taking a view on arbitraging arbitraging energy prices and for both of those revenue sources uh, you have to you know you've got to take, make a whole raft of assumptions over the coming years and with more batteries coming online more pump storage some of those some of that volatility in energy which can be lucrative today might not be so lucrative tomorrow. So they become quite hard things for mainstream project financiers to, to lend to and infrastructure funds that like nice, you know, reliable income to, to invest in. So so that's why we think there's there's a good role for us that we can we can step into uh, and help support and invest in those those projects. I mean to date most the big battery in South Australia, of course, got support from the South Australian government. The, the business models uh, are still, you know, are looking and needing uh, often some form of uh, grant or, or um, you know, state government support to, to, to get up. In putting aside the the assumptions you have to make around uh, energy arbitrage and FCAS income, uh, but but we see it as, as as an area which we want to invest. It's good. It supports the grid. Uh, supports uh, you know frequency control and you know all increasingly issues uh, around the country pump storage again a little bit in the same vein but much you know they're longer dated deals they can be uh, yeah they can be very relatively high capital cost two three hundred megawatt uh, projects very expensive multi hundred million dollar projects where you have to look at revenue inc- incomes again about energy arbitrage. Am I Sorry. right? In, am I right in thinking that you've been asked to 
Sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt there. I'm, I'm just. Have you been asked to inter- in, um, to uh, have a look over the UNGI, the um, f- the federal government underwriting projects? I understand that um, CFC is helping out the government with some advice on that. We, look, that's true. Yes, we are, we are working and uh, providing uh, effectively seconding some of our uh, uh, highly uh, you know, some of the expertise we have with uh, our senior staff members into. Um, in, in to help the department evaluate the UNG projects. So yes, we're working closely with the government to see what we can do to help, uh, you know, look at these projects and how they uh, how they might be, uh, you know, how they might get them up. And Ian, uh, I noticed, in fact, that uh, you had your the CFC's mandate was adjusted to focus uh, to on dispatchable generation. Uh, I personally think we've got quite a window before we need it, but it's great to get some started if it, if it is going to be pumped hydro or battery because if we do a little bit every year, it'll make the overall task that much more achievable. But I wanted to ask about my current hobby horse, and that is transmission, uh, and what you see as the CEFC's role in that since you uh, you know called it out as an area that you are starting to look at. And after that, I might even ask about electric buses. There's so much to talk about. Indeed. Look, transmission, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. The, the numbers are large, timeframes are long. Some states' transmission is owned by the government. Other states, it's been privatised, so they have different ownership models uh, and they have a, quite a complex regulatory framework uh, that, that kind of regulates uh, whether these assets go into regulated asset bases or not. Now, where transmission is regulated and can recover its capital costs from uh, consumers, they're easily financed. It'll be, it's the opportunities where that isn't so straightforward. There might be a long delay. Uh, they may need some risky capital to, to kind of bridge that delay. They may need, it may be something that even only part of that asset might get into the regulated asset base. How do you finance the balance of it? And people and projects like um, Marinus, the, the the Basslink connection, that that will uh, you know that th- that may not be a straightforward one for the investment community, but we would uh, you know we relish being involved in that project because it will unlock all those renewables and pump storage uh, up there in Northwest Tassie. So th- that's the sort of deal that we you know we're hopeful that we can play a role. And, and can you accelerate, uh, you know, my bugbear is how long the transmission process takes and that if someone would commit the, uh, early capital, um, then, then you know, some of this uh, stuff, uh, you know, could, 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 be, uh, could be accelerated in the sense that you wouldn't have to wait for all the AR approval before you got on with the, you know, engineering design and stuff if you were sure there was some, some money there. And that that that's right. We we um, uh, you know, we know that that's that's been a been a real issue. Putting in the, you know, orders for transformers or cabling and lining up with the rest of you know what in very other countries around the world are also doing the same thing. Uh, before you know whether or not you're going to it's going to come into your your regulated asset base. So uh, that is a possibility. We haven't done anything like that to date. Um, but but we, we we are looking and considering that that, that sort of idea, um, but equally uh, do we uh, you know, do we come into unregulated augmentation uh, in the grid that might link up a renewable energy zone might not be a 
like a big interconnect. It might just be an extension of a line to a particular region that has high-quality high uh, renewable resource. And uh, we, you know, we're looking at those sorts of deals. How can we play a role there uh, and help attract other private investors in alongside us if, we, if maybe we take, a, take some risks or provide longer-dated uh, capital and, and, and fill that gap? Go Charles. I was going to ask the same question as you were, which is about electric vehicles, be they cars or buses or fleets or whatever. Ian, what, what have you got on the agenda then? Yeah. Well, you'd be pleased to see the cover of our annual report has uh, a car charging up, an electric vehicle being recharged. Um, but yeah, look, we've to date been um, financing electric vehicles through some of the banking groups that have been in, in auto finance, um, providing kind of cheap loans to, to people buying EVs. That's obviously only part of the puzzle. We need we need uh, Australians to, to kind of get over their range anxiety and uh, we need more models, cheaper models to be available. And, uh, you know, this year we we organised a, a big EV demonstration. In fact, we ought to organised one in, in Sydney and Melbourne over the last 12 months and we got all the – and the Melbourne one was more just the um, – uh, you know some of the you know, the the OEMs turned up and and we we got to to see those vehicles in action. The, the, the Sydney one out at Eastern Creek Raceway had a lot of the fleet buyers, but all the fleet buyers out there, giving them a chance to think about how can they incorporate them into their into their purchasing because they represent something like sixty percent of cars bought in, in, in Australia come from fleets, one way or another. But uh, yeah, we've we've. Um, we're looking at uh, there's a, you know some of the infrastructure recharging uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, you know we're still kind of working with uh, seeing how that works. But it, look, it's not just the capital that's going to make the difference. I think people still find them a bit expensive. So might there be uh, state, federal governments of um, financial in incentives, possibly uh, state governments deciding that they're going to make their their government fleets electric. And we get that supply chain happening. So it's look, it's a challenge. We're, we're laggards uh, in the world, aren't we? With with electric vehicles, uh, we're trying to do the, as much as we can using capital. But I think there's you know there's there's other elements to it that'll bring um, bring up our our uptake up to the level it should be. Ian, uh, one of the things just I've noticed as the CEFC gets bigger, uh, maybe I'm over reading this, but there seems to be a little bit of a, a focus on investing in other people's funds uh, that that have objectives and the CFC is kind of, uh, I don't know, becoming uh, uh, the, the sort of fund of funds. And that's that's not the right term, but but uh, I just wondered, uh, do you plan to keep going down this path of outsourcing some of the individual investment decisions to, to if you like, a sub-manager or something like that? And how do you think about whether to do that or not? Yeah, uh, this is a good question because we have done, as you say, quite a bit of it. And we've done it in a number of sectors. You know, we cornerstone an agriculture fund that Macquarie raised. We've been in land leased AMP, Mervac um, funds as a limited partner. We've, of course, supported renewable energy funds, Palisades, Morrisons, um, Infrastructure Capital Group. We, at the end of the day, I guess we're we're always trying to get as much reach, as much bang for our, for our buck as possible. There's only um, uh, 105 or seven of us uh, at the CEFC, 
how can we uh, accelerate the decarbonisation of the country? Uh, you know, with, with the capital we've got. So yes, we look. We do work with with partners. I mean, as well as all the funds that we've invested in. Of course, we've also been providing wholesale uh, debt facilities to the banks uh, around around Australia. You know, NAB, ANZ, Westpac, um, Macquarie. Um, NAB and um, they on lend with concessional finance, so we provide them with uh, sub-market debt, which they then use their literally tens of thousands of business bankers around the country to, to lend to SMEs, um, farmers in regional Australia who might want to want to buy panels, batteries, and so on. So yes, look, we we are leveraging off. Uh, what we think is the best of best of the best, um, and that's that allows us to get greater reach right across geographies, right across sectors. But look, we still uh, we've still done 130 direct deals, uh, as well as uh, something like 11,000 indirect deals, which through those banking groups. So um, look, it's it's all part of I guess the over. Uh, you know the mix that we that, that we have there in the broad portfolio that we work with. I know that you've got um, a bit of time challenge, so maybe I just might throw one question, and it's more of a general one. Um, you've been there for a couple of years now in the CFC. You've probably had a um, inside um, or a bit of insight into the uh, political workings. Um, certainly, seen what the market's thinking and had a good look at technologies. Uh, you compared to a couple of years ago when you first took the job. How do you see? the energy transition before us and our emissions reduction task, are you any more optimistic about it now than you were before? And do you think we can actually achieve these things in the time that the scientists say that uh, we have allotted to us? Yeah, I mean, look, tough question. And I, um, I, you know, I don't, you know, can't speculate on sort of government policy and so on. But what I would say is even in the time that I've been there, uh, you know, the renewable energy sector has just been extraordinary in terms of its its growth, its development, how quickly it's evolved. The distributed energy in Australia has, has just gone from, you know, large to spectacularly large. Um, and out of that's come amazing technologies and entrepreneurs. And now we're still having conversations about being a potentially an exporter of green hydrogen. Uh, you know, can Australia use its incredible resources to to be the world's leading exporter of, of green hydrogen, and maybe that's a fuel that's going to displace carbon throughout South Korea, Japan, and other and other countries. So, look, I'm optimistic. It's it's easy to get pessimistic and and a bit flat when you look at what uh, generally global emission, you know, what's happening in climate change, global warming, uh, you know, where. Uh, where people see see these these things heading, we have no control over the developing world. They, they've got their own, um, you know, they've got their own pressures and so on. We can only do what we, you know, we can do. The CFC has has capital, has has terrific uh, people uh, and domain expertise, and we can only invest in in predominantly Australian businesses. So, I guess we, you know, got the head down, trying to do the best we can. I'm very encouraged with. What we can do in Australia, but um, yeah, it's you know it's a big challenge. 
I, I, you know, I think this, as I said before, I think you and the CFC have done a great job in recent years. And I think the people that set up both Arena and the CFC really uh, were very far-sighted. And I'm not sure around the world whether there's anything quite comparable to the CFC, but uh, uh, it's certainly great to have it, uh, um, um, you know, as a foundation uh, that helps the development of decarbonisation in Australia. So, well done. Oh, thank you. Really appreciate it. And the support of uh, Renew Economy as well. Uh, you know, we really appreciate the work that you guys do. Uh, very important voice in the sector. Well, after that sort of mutual congratulations, um, time to say thank you very much, Ian, um, for coming on board. And we'd love to talk to you longer, but I do know that your time press. So um, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast this week. I appreciate it. All the best. Thank you very much. And that was um, Ian Lemont, um, CEO of Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Um, David, as you say, look, they've done a pretty good job. Um, I kind of find it a bit interesting about their sort of shift in portfolio from sort of direct projects and direct technologies to these sort of fund of funds, as you mentioned in the interview, and um, these sort of trusts and, you know, these Macquarie things for, for this, that and the other and aged care homes. Um, what do you make of that? Look, the first thing I did was kick myself afterwards for thinking it was an $8 billion fund rather than a $10 billion one. I hate getting my facts wrong. And uh, I, look, I think uh, it's becoming a big business, the CEFC. If you think about it, the market capitalisation of a uh, one of our big banks is, say, 80 to $100 billion, uh, in, in equity. Uh, this is going to be a, a $10 billion equity business uh, a year down the track, just to give you an idea of how... And, and it is a huge credit to the government in Australia. I've said they didn't do many things. And, and it, look, it was a Labor government with the help, I suppose, uh, of of the coalition at the time that established ARENA and the CEFC. And I don't think there's an organisation like the CEFC that I'm aware of anywhere else around the world. And it's just done, a, uh, particularly since Ian's been there, I have to say that, I think it's done uh, a fantastic job and, and really come into its own with the breadth of its portfolio. And because of the size of it, it's not uh, unnatural to outsource some of the funds, I guess, to, to people who you know, can probably do a pretty good job in, in their own right without having to build up the, you know, machine and the bureaucracy within the CFC directly. You know, interesting stuff, yeah. Um, what else has been happening? Um, All Energy Conference um, occurred this week. Um, neither of us were there, but the reports I've got from um, our team down there was that it was a reasonably positive vibe. And um, why would there be any anything else? What with uh, rooftop solar sort of still going, tracking very strongly, it'll be record installations this year. And um, people largely positive um, on utility scale, although I think there has to be a fair bit of optimism and hopefulness um, that some of the uh, policy and connection issues will be resolved. But um, um, well, they've put, they've put their fifty percent renewables target into law. I don't think we ever mentioned that on the uh, podcast yet. Uh, that's Victoria. Yeah. That's right. Yes. So that, that's a, that's that's a great step, you know. And uh, with that in South Australia and Tasmania, that basically that whole of Southern Australia is going to be very highly renewable in in the not too distant future, uh, for better or for worse. And that will field into the aluminium story and the future of your lawn. And uh, look, I've, we've we've taken up a lot of time on this podcast already, but I'll just mention it again. It's the whole thing is going to fall and end in tears if we don't get the transmission sort of thing side of things sorted out. And, and I would really like to see uh, Angus Taylor, uh, the federal government, come on board and, and commit to getting transmission done. They must realise it's for the good of Australia. It's all very well the UNGI thing. We're not opposed to UNGI, 
uh, you know, because it's mostly going to be renewable stuff. So, so great. Uh, but let's get the transmission done. And that's widely identified as by far the biggest problem. And it's something where the federal government could do something to help if it really wanted to. Absolutely. And look, just one final thing. I'm just going to piss in your pocket a bit, David, um, because you were very sceptical about the uh, Port Augusta Solar Tower um, project. Now, South Australia cancelled that earlier on this year. And um, this week, it's finally retended for um, 100% electricity supply or all, all, its, all its electricity needs. And um, interestingly, the original um, solar tower in Nevada, Crescent Dunes, um, it looks like it's going to lose its contract with the Nevada utility because it's failed to perform adequately. So... Um when you look at that, you'll find there's not much equity from the actual original equity holders. It's all been funded by, you know, projects and, and asset projects. And uh, which reminds me, uh, another thing we'd like to see is some news on this Genix thing. Every quarter they tell us it's any quarter now uh, and it just keeps pushing out. So I, I do think the Genix thing will happen, but it would be nice to have it confirmed. Yes. yes I th- and uh, I th- don't, piss in, don't piss in my pocket, uh, uh, Giles. Uh, you know, it's a whole, hard enough for an old guy anyway, <laughs> keeping everything uh, contained around there. But... <laughs> Um, just one final note as well. Um, just like to point out to uh, on the Solar Insiders podcast, we actually have a recording from a um, an open session at the All Energy Conference, which actually focused on sort of uh, solar modules. You, um, um, quality issues, um, which I think is an important one. And also on the Driven podcast, we did an interview this week with Tony Fairweather, who's the founder and managing director of SEA Electric. Uh, it's an Australian company which is setting up a manufacturing base in the Trobe Valley, but they've already made huge inroads into converting trucks and delivery vans and what have you uh, into electric and, and finding some really big customers. So that's all good for that. So, David, thank you very much. And thanks to all our listeners. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Solaray Energy and Everything. Jen, thank you for your ongoing support and we recommend that people check out their products. David, we'll talk again next week. We will, and I'd like to leave listeners uh, who know the local scene with one final question. They might think we might run a poll. You know, what would happen to electricity prices in Victoria if uh, if Portland did close? But uh, we can discuss that in a year's time. Cheers now. Bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.